Uh, I appreciate you guys being able to sit down with me again. Uh, I think uh, each of you are familiar uh, with uh, the. Sorry, it's going live there now. Uh, with with our free speech union podcast, which is which is what we're going to be li- uh, putting this out live on, and and uh, some of the other events that we hold here on our Facebook page. Uh, today really is is about celebrating the fact that we have uh, put our annual review out that uh, the first twelve months of the free speech union with its ups and downs and and everything that comes uh, with a grassroots movement like ours we've we've been able to push on with that and uh, some different stakeholders from uh, from different parts of the country uh, and partners of ours who have shared in our successes so we have uh, Simon O'Connor Simon are you joining us from Parliament this evening or are you up in Tamaki? Uh, not not in Parliament, let's just say an, an undisclosed location. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> hush, hush. Right. And uh, and also Matt McCartan uh, from Utu Union. Uh, Matt, where are you joining us from? I've come home, especially the Fevela Comfort Zone with you. Oh, very good. <laughs> and, and then uh, Hannah Jane's uh, barrister based up in Auckland, I think. Is that correct? Thank you. Yes. Very, very good. Yes. Well, no, it's it's great to get to join with you all. And and Matt, I wonder if we if we could start off with you. You told me not to put the qu- first question to you, but I'm I'm a defiant young man. Uh, but but your background really is in that union movement, and and being part of uh, a union has been a big part of our story over the past twelve months. And so I wanted to ask you to kick us off. You're at the coalface of, of issues like this, and and attacks on free speech. I think they can often be characterized as as maybe philosophical but they have very real implications for a lot of people. And, and in the annual review that we distributed today, we unpack some of those cases that we've worked on, some of the people we've been able to stand up for. I guess, how how are working people, working class people, hurting through uh, free speech being undermined in, in certain sectors of our society today? Oh, it's a good question. Thank you for asking, actually. Um, and, and I think that people see free speech as a broader issue in the civil society. I see it, it's also about in the, in the relationships of power, mm. you know, in terms of those without power and those who've got power. And those who have power always want to suppress free speech, and that's the history of life. And so where I'm at the cold face is, is people who are very vulnerable to exploitation and abuse, and they need to tell their stories. They're frightened, they're terrified, and what the, those invested interests rush off the course to try and suppress it. That's always the thing. What we've actually got now, which I think is extraordinarily sinister, that they can get their gagging orders, no trespass orders, but also that it's secret. No one is to know they've even got it. Mm. I think that has now been used more often, and this has been done, and then there's big penalties for it. So this is an employment relation, you know, among the employment authority, where these authority members are issuing them out, and then to make matters worse, they then send the cost to the worker who is normally always a, a migrant worker being exploited, you know, mm. uh, no money and no and no resources. So that's the crassness of free speech. And I can't even even articulate their stories, which I do. So as soon as I put a story, it's all true, and don't deny that. As soon as I write about a story on their on their behalf, then they try and suppress it. And I think and that and that's that's motivated me to have common cause with with the free speech union. Um, mm. Mm. And I think it's really important. 
One of the uh, individuals that we hosted uh, at one of our speakeasies this year was Jonathan Rausch, the American journalist. And and he famously said, uh, free speech is not the the, the friend of the minority. It is is the only friend of the minority. He really emphasizes that to say free speech is actually for the weak and the vulnerable. It's it's not a common narrative we hear today. All the people who are victims, all I've got is their story. Mm, mm. All I've got is their story, and they've been told they're not allowed to tell their, their, their story. And it's the most fundamental right for anybody in any civil society, whether it's you know, the work I do in terms of exploitation and, and use of power, but this is in domestic relationships, this is in all relationships, that people have got to be able to tell their story. Mm. And that's how you get change. That's how you question power. It's like, you know, that's Simon. Well, imagine that MMM weren't allowed to have free speech. It's just ridiculous. You know, it's just it's just absurd. And what we've got is this creeping, creeping um, um, from those in charge. And I don't even know if they kind of appreciate it. They, they think yeah. they're helping, but actually they're not. And all free all all oppression of free speech has always been used, you know, against those who are trying to have change. And always says anyone knows that. That's that's yeah. right. Now, now, Hannah, I think you, you've also got a, an interesting perspective in this. You, you are a, 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 quite an accomplished uh, barrister and solicitor. Uh, I was going to say in Auckland, but actually across the country. But uh, you also volunteer your time, I think, at, at one of the Citizens Advice uh, Bureau legal clinics. And so in your work there, and I, I guess more generally as an advocate, um, you see how the law defends these most basic rights. Were you surprised to hear some of the stories of the individuals that we've been able to support and and, and the fact that in New Zealand and employment relations in in such a, a, you know, enlightened, liberal, democratic nation, there are people who are being silenced in this way? Yeah, look, and just picking up from something Matt was saying, I think the the breadth of the commitment and support the Free Speech Union has is that profound belief and respect for free speech that for a liberal democracy, it really is the most inclusive, most effective way that minorities and majorities are able to express, debate, challenge and look evaluating what they believe and whether it's still relevant or pertinent. So very much in the legal work that I do, in the volunteer work that I do, as Matt said, it's the ability to tell your story uncensored, listened to and respected, which doesn't mean that anybody or everybody will agree with you, but that dignity and respect of being able to articulate your perspective, your experience, your story, and, and have it part of the, the common human experience. Mm, mm, mm. Do, do you think it's becoming harder to tell your story? In, in the work that you're doing, would you say that, you know, I, I think this is a narrative that we would hear that, that people love the notion of telling your story, being true to yourself, uh, kind of my generation celebrates that. But actually, ironically, do you think we undermine that in some ways? I think that's the real concern for a lot of people and why you have 75,000 members from across the spectrum of social, economic, political, human rights, that there is a real sense of threat 
that there people are being silenced, they're being censored, that if you have anything that is perceived as hurtful to somebody else, you are no longer able to articulate that mm-hmm. view. So I really stand by, you know, Voltaire's you know, yeah. well-touted, you know, that I may vigorously oppose and not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. What and a foreign so that, that is a concern. Yeah, yeah. I, I think then and now that is a really confronting way of viewing the world, but but really it does produce the most peaceful, stable ways forward, doesn't it? Uh, Simon, talking about but peace and stability, these aren't words we often associate with parliaments. Uh, and, and, and you've been in, in parliament for over a decade now. Do do you think uh, the, the way we're having this conversation, kind of more uh, generally about being able to tell your story, being able to voice uh, out your perspectives, and then kind of more concretely around some of the affronts that we're seeing to free speech, do you think that's changed over the 10 years that you've been there? Oh, it, it certainly it certainly has. Hey, first and foremost, though, look, congratulations to you and the, the union for the work that you've done uh, and articulated in your annual uh, report and can I just say to those listening, do read through it. Um, and to echo <laughs> to what Hannah and Matt have said, I mean, free speech is ultimately about sharing stories. And what's in a sense so threatening about that? You know, the worst story you hear, you can just ignore it and, and move on. But that person's spoken, and perhaps, and it does uh, play into the parliamentary dynamic too. That many people have succeeded or obtained power, if you will, by sharing their stories by enjoying free speech. But what we are beginning to see. Um, and it's a process which is speeding up, I would suggest, is mm. pulling that ladder up, that the very ladder which some have used, free speech, um, is being removed from others. And here it has changed in Parliament. When I first was elected, this really wasn't on uh, the radar. But there's very briefly two things have happened. One is a variety of legislation uh, that's been put through and touted. So obviously the um, hate speech legislation uh, proposed is, is one example of that. The other is just the nature of debate in Parliament now where people are being decried and told that they're supremacist, racist, whatever, the, the use of labels um, to try and limit what people can uh, say. There's no shortage of them, by the way, but and from all sides. But that's something which I personally see as happening more and more now, uh, and that should be a concern to all uh, New Zealanders. At the heart of their democratic structure um, members of parliament have been silenced or attempts rather, attempts to silence them. Well, that's right. I, I, I don't think um, there's been much success in keeping you quiet on this issue. One of the quotes that I have for this evening uh, that I want to bring up is, is, is something that you said on the uh, Education Freedom of Expression Bill that was voted down several weeks ago, unfortunately. This was a piece of legislation that the ACT Party put forward, and it was um, putting incentives in place for universities to protect free speech. And of course, a lot of our story over the past year has been about the university and about uh, lack of access and the lack of free speech there. But Simon, if I could just quickly quote you there, um, quite frankly, you say, so we needed legislation like this. We need more legislation like this because at the end of the day, our universities are no longer filled with academics. They're filled with activists and their mindsets are weak and they shake their heads on the other side. We know it's so weak because they cannot even sustain the most coherent, simple, basic arguments without crying. 
And so uh, that that would be one way that that you presented it. And then a lot of our supporters really enjoyed that speech. There was, I think, there was quite a lot of opinion about it online. Uh, but but you you called out at least from one perspective, uh, kind of the emotional emo, emotive. Uh, emotionization is that the word <laughs> emotivizing of of a lot of debate and uh, and and it actually removes it from a logical rational basis do you think uh, people are resorting to feelings around hurts and around safety a lot more than actually engaging with logical uh, ideas in the general terms yes i mean by the way stand by that speech it's um, millions and millions of views now i've been a bit taken aback by it actually um but it's, it's a generalization. There's many good academics and kudos to them. But unfortunately, in a general sense, yeah, um, reason is being replaced with emotion. Uh, log- logic is being replaced by lived experience, um, mm. for example. Um, and it's a, it's a real problem because actually those, you know, emotion, lived experience, for example, don't, don't facilitate constructive conversations if there's no... There's no foundation or some at least objectivity to base off. And that's what we're seeing more and more. And again, in your annual report, the work that you've led this year and, and many of us is highlighting universities which are shutting people down without them having said anything um, based on someone, literally sometimes just one person saying that they're upset. That's just not how we should function. Mm, mm. And Matt, um, something that we unpack in, in the annual report is is the three work streams that the Free Speech Union has. We work on cases, campaigns and content, uh, each trying to advance our vision of, of protecting and extending free speech in New Zealand. And, and as I said before, and, and we discussed a little, unionisation has, has been a, a key part of us being able to do that. It's allowed us access to workplaces on university campuses and that kind of thing as well. It, it draws into question kind of the work that unions do. Do you think unions are doing enough in this space at the moment to elevate the voice of their members and, and to, to counteract some of the suppression and censorship that is possibly emerging? Um, no. Um, and I just the point is that what and I think um, when you first formed the free speech union, I thought, mm-hmm, okay. Um, you know, but I think what I what you've done, the work that I would have um, uh, you know, I was not so cynical, but I just raised my eyebrows. So, well, let's see. Because what you're doing is the theory, the submissions, and the practice. Mm. You know? And that's how you get change by actually, you know, you just not talk best. You actually go out and campaign. You take the stories and you and you educate and try and persuade the public thing. I think what unions, that was the traditional role, you know, articulating because it's, it's economic, but the unions have had a broader social um, changes, you know, and what I what I was really disappointed about was, you know, I was actually quite shocked. Um, it's that when the CTU, the Council of Trade Unions and other unions, supported a, 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 a position to have the police clear out the parliamentary grounds and the occupiers were there. The union went, we're a protest movement. I thought, what? What? You know, and so that's a culture now that, you know, we've turned away from being activists for political change. We're now missionaries. We know what's good for you, you know, mm. and so we, we, we're kind and we're things. So, so I think it's a real dangerous thing. And I've seen it slip, and, you know, for a working class activist, and I, and I come from that back, 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 back background, I don't need to explain to me what free speech is, you know. And mm. I've just been quite uh, disappointed that we actually have evolved, evolving in now 
your offence is more important than my right to say what I think. You know, and this is seeped into academia. You know, and I come from a time when, you know, whether it's Maori rights or the Springbok tour or the anti-Vietnam or the nuclear free, they were the universities were centres of that progressive um, thing. Now it's quite suppressive. You know, it's like how do we stop thought? That's kind of what a university is supposed to be. It might be because you know we we've, we've got little darlings or or, or or go there, and I feel upset about something, so we must stop it. And when the academics have got intimidated by it, or just lost their way, I, I, I'm I'm not of that world. But it is a different world now than, than what it was even 20 years ago. Unfortunately, it's 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 it's, it's worldwide now. You know, it's in the Western world where we're taking on a a dangerous um, uh, approach and. They try and have made it a left-right thing. And why I want to participate in these debates and support the FSU is because it's not a left-right debate, you know, and that's how the left, some of the left, keep trying to make it so that they can dismiss it. And I, you know, and I congratulate. I read the, briefly went through the report, and it, it, it's a beautiful report. Man, you've been doing some good work. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I, I hope our supporters feel heartened that they're the ones that make this all possible. And, yes, and, and, and you, I think all money to you, to you like that. Look at that report. Okay. My word, I've got to put another hundred bucks in the. In, in, in the <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear that. Say that again. A hundred dollars in the campaign at the end of this call. Very good. Now, now, Matt, I wonder because because uh, you you are a stalwart uh, of the union movement in New Zealand, and and you've uh, set up uh, Utu, which is a, another union to support particularly migrant uh, workers' voices in New Zealand. I don't know if you've come across this at all. The Free Speech Union is regularly told, almost on a weekly basis, you're not a real union. And I've never really been able to figure out what they mean by that. So as a, a union stalwart yourself, why are we not a real union? Why why do we not to get to wear that badge and, and own it with pride? Why do you think it is that people deny us uh, this idea no, that we well, actually get to yeah, come well, together no, as employers? Yeah. Well, look, um, it is a new concept, right? That unions are about have been traditionally about economic justice and employment matters, right? So, so that's the nuts and bolts that comes under the Employment Relations Act. Um, what you have done is the new unionism, right? So it's about social movements that that the days of um, big employers with big structures and so on and so on. The union movement now is a, a different beast, and it's very small now, you know. So it's a very it's retreated to the pub, public service and big employers. Society has changed. And I think that what the unions have done, they're still staying in that in, in, in that paradigm. And what I what I think that the original unions, way, you know, 100, 200, well, 100 year, year, years ago, were very much about social, you know, about justice, about housing, about the widow's pensions, about factories, about safety of, of children and, and so on and so on. That was what it was founded on. And I think when it was formalised into acts of parliament, they got restricted into the economic relationship with employers. So what you are doing, and what I think I'm doing with Utu, we're doing with Utu and others, we're broadening that and say, it's not about your relationship as with your employer, it's your right yeah. as a person to get collect and work collectively with others for justice. So I think the principle of a union that the FEC is absolutely doing, collective action, for social change or for change and, and protect the the, the the individual. So mm-hmm. um, I think you're on the new wave of what the union movement has to really develop. In, so, mm-hmm. so, 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 sorry, let's finish this. 
I tell the unions you are morphed into staff associations. Mm. Right? That's what you become. But that's not what the union, the union movement was about. It was about social change for justice for, for, for er, 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 everyone. It's not a staff association. That's mm, mm, mm. Staff associations are far more docile, aren't they? <laughs> well, uh, say, well, we represent firefighters, or we represent teachers, or we represent nurses, right? They're staff associations, mm, mm. not unions. You know, they, 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 they don't need, need a union. They find a staff association. If all you're going to do is the economic, your relationship with the for a staff association. Mm. Oh, mm. But Jonathan, can I pick up from where Matt was? I got a sense you were coming to me that it very much is, a, to my mind, and the reason that I strongly support the Free Speech Union is because it is about social justice. It is about social reform and social change. And picking up Simon's, you know, point, huge. Uh, congratulations to you for what you have achieved in one year. But the counterpoint for that is it's seriously disturbing the broad range and the seriousness of the issues that you have been addressing, you know, from hate speech to, you know, to democracy and particularly for me personally is the whole academic listener seven yeah. and also, you know, the Bethlehem and, and the, um, the NZME issues, you know, there are some substantial, seriously concerning matters that you have turned your mind to and supported and advocated for, you know, very much across the spectrum. It's not left or right or even centre. It, you know, it affects every single life in New Zealand. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. there, you know, there is strong concern about what is happening, shutting down, particularly for the future and well-being of New Zealand society. If we are silencing and teaching our young people at school that there is only one acceptable view of the world mm. that they are not allowed to to think and debate and have a divergent view and certainly not express it if they do that's hugely concerning and as Matt said university should be the bastion of intellectual debate intellectual thought divergence of opinion and expression and if we're not fostering and advocating for that you know, it is a real concern for what New Zealand looks like in the future. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, what's been interesting, if I can just pick up on that point, Hannah, is is the difference in New Zealand uh, with free speech on a- academic campuses and universities and in places like the United States, where certainly there's debates around free speech there, but it's pushed by students in the United States more than it is in New Zealand, where the consistent opposition that we face uh, as the Free Speech Union in New Zealand comes from academics and comes from those that are already part of the ivory tower and and, and are drawing up, I guess, students in this way of thinking. I, I, I wonder, do any of you kind of, uh, uh, you associate with different groups in, in, in different parts of your lives. Where does this come from, that that academics now are the ones that are actually uh, threatened and, and, and opposed to the notion of free speech? Aren't they the ones that should be its greatest uh, uh, bulk works? I've got a view about this. I didn't want to cut across Simon, Simon, because that'll turn, but I'll, I'll just say this very quickly, though, because that's the question. Now, why is this happening? Mm. Now, I'm, as, a, as a lefty, so let me come from that position on, right? 
is that I think that the universities with user pay, you know, loans and sending wealthy, I think they, they are the youth of the privileged, you know, and it's liberal poverty, personally, how it affects me, whether it's sexuality or whether it's, uh, you know, mm. environment or about, about issues, whereas those from the working class, those are poor, it's, it's, it's the nuts and bolts stuff, you know, can, can I feed my family, can I? So when we had free u- universities or free cops in the state, you know, poor kids who were bright could go to, un- to university and they didn't come from a position of privilege and about it's about me. They were privileged to be there and they, had, and they were opened up to ideas, you know, and for social change because they'd come from, from a childhood of actually, you know, things aren't right. Whereas I think if you're brought up in a wealthy fam- family or a middle-class family, you have, those issues aren't real to you. And I think when it's gone in there and it's about their own way, how they feel about it. So it's, it's not reaction. This is, I, I'm sort of, you know, I, I think there has been a morphing, you know, because at the Ivy League schools the in the States, say, the teachers, and I've got lecturers and teachers here, are scared. Are scared to yeah. actually challenge their students, and so I think there's been um, a very worrying um, move, and I think it, it's dangerous to to think. And I think that, that that you know when comedians can't go into your to your to your to your universities, right? What? What? You know. So I think it's really disturbing. Mm. Simon, can I draw you in there? Because, uh, you know, I can imagine some of your voters in Tamaki there going, what's he doing on this panel with this raving lefty? We don't we don't uh, support those left politics. <laughs> um, I think half our viewer base has just turned off. But but it's interesting. One of the comments Mike, uh, I'm sorry, Matt made there before was was about rights. And, and, and Simon, you often talk about rights. You talk about what the Enlightenment and what that classical liberal perspective has, has offered us in rights. And, and is there a contrast maybe in, in the perspective that you have at times of the left uh, and of, of unionization and, and the rights that, that Matt's talking about and how actually free speech is ultimately founded on, on that very perspective? Well, free speech is, is based off human rights. I mean, one of the most fundamental things we can do is to speak in the same way as to move, which is why we have freedom of movement. We're social creatures, which is why we have freedom of association. And it's why, you know, I'll probably disagree with Matt on a number of political issues, but actually I love the fact that he holds a different view, Mm. that he champions the cause of workers, that he joins unions. There's times without throwing bouquets for the sake of it that I go, good on him and what he's doing. And that's to be celebrated. But what we're seeing, particularly through the universities and coming through the political and other sphere now, um, is it, it's a monological approach. It's a single approach. And I'm going to have to think about what Matt said around the whole, um, which, if you will, classes of people are, are accessing universities. I think that's something I hadn't considered. But what I think you're also having seen over probably about 30 or 40 years is just a, a slow growth of people who have a very, a small number of people who have a very set moral view of the world. Mm. Um, and it's like, like a religious view, an intolerant religious view. Uh, and they've just moved their way into academia, particularly into the arts and, and social uh, areas. They've set themselves in and become incredibly loud and intolerant. And in itself, that's no threat. But what's happened is also a lack of confidence, particularly in the West, of its own traditions, its own knowledge. You mentioned the Enlightenment, all of these things. So you've got a, a small, intolerant, but vocal crowd meeting 
a wider society that's uncertain of itself. Um, and it's created quite the atmosphere. And ultimately, and I think I think Hannah may have touched on this a little bit, that you have academics who are just afraid to speak up now. And one of your surveys you did showed that. There's piles and piles of academics out there who have a different view, but they're too scared. Mm. But that's a whole other story about why that's happening. But there's my somewhat quick attempt to try to explain. Well, I I think those are very interesting comments there, Simon. Yesterday, I was at a union meeting at AUT campus on Wellesley Street in in Auckland there. And of course, in April, our meeting there was uh, was cancelled quite abruptly. Uh, We we currently have a hearing before the the Employment Relations Authority challenging the university on that decision because, in our opinion, it was blatantly illegal. But they did have us come back several months later and we were able to to meet with academic staff and and other employees of the university there. Uh, But it's interesting the point that you make there, Simon, around self-censorship. There there was not not a large crowd, but there there was a group of students that that met us as we exited, protesting our presence on campus, protesting allegedly the the, uh, ideas we were spouting, though they wouldn't know because the university had forbidden them from students being able to enter into that meeting. So they wouldn't know what what Daphne Whitmore or the likes had been saying there. And it draws into this question we discussed in that meeting around self-censorship. The Kiwi culture, I think, often struggles with the idea of being provided you know we're not latin in that way we're not italians uh you know we probably go out of our way to to try and and keep the peace at times uh where does self-censorship interact with politeness and maybe that that british heritage that many of us have of 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 being courteous do you think that's part of where we're coming to an issue here oh look Look, I think the British tradition, if you want to use that term, is incredibly um, uh, challenging. You know, the late Sir Roger Scruton, for okay. example, a more recent philosopher and commentator. I mean, got Douglas Murray at the moment, <laughs> all the way back through to Locke, Hume. I mean, they weren't prissy guys sitting on the, the fence. They were very robust in their discussions. I mean, what you're describing with these protesters And as with the first group, that was, by the way, um, and you would have seen the OIA, the Official Information Act I shared, you were banned effectively because of one person. And your listeners need to understand, one person said they felt upset and the entire academic hierarchy freaked out and banned you. And fundamentally what it was, obviously they don't know what you were going to say, it was who you were. That's right. And again, this is what is so insidious in free speech. Again, it's got nothing to do whether you've said something good, bad or indifferent. It's who you are. Um, And this is incredibly dangerous. And and I'll I'll finish on here because I'm conscious Hannah and others will want to speak. But take the likes of a J.K. Rowling, for example. She says one thing. Now, whether you agree with it or not around transgenderism is irrelevant at this point. But she said something controversial. The mob went after her. And the important point, Jonathan, is it's not just what she said, but everything she's ever done, Mm. everything she's ever going to do is now wrong. Mm. She is completely cancelled by these people. No redemption, no hope, no forgiveness, no nothing. That That is so dangerous. And we've been there in history before. That's my last point here. We've had this intolerant monological, single-view, doctrinaire, religious before. It didn't end well. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, we had the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I do want to draw you uh, your perspective in here because um, y- your experience as both a solicitor but as a barrister as well before the court is is also quite relevant to our story as uh, as the Free Speech Union over the past year. Of course, uh, our our metamorphosis from the Free Speech Coalition. We bought a case in where that entity started with uh, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux in the case around access to public venues in Auckland, and uh, that case now finds itself before the Supreme Court. We've had other court cases as well, uh, where you know uh, Daphna Whitmore and the Speak Up for Women, uh, the Just- Justice Nation found in favour of them in, in, in Palmerston North through the help of of the Free Speech Union as well. I, I guess, um, do you think it's important, like that cases like this are pushed forward in, in the courts? We have a common law heritage where the precedents that are set in these decisions go forward in, in shaping the way we, we view these issues. Uh, why do you think uh, these cases are actually changing the way we're moving forward? To preface it by showing what a sad puppy I am that I have no life. I sat through the two and a half days of the Supreme <laughs> Court hearing uh, remotely. I, and I, it is extremely important that because we have Section 14 of uh, the Bill of Rights, which effectively enshrines uh, freedom of expression, which is inclusive of freedom of, of speech, but then you've got, you know, Section 61 of the Human Rights Act, which modifies that. And just slightly touching on what you've talked about before, it's that sense of what are the boundaries of that sort of threatening, abusive or insulting um, parameters that we have to confine speech within and because New Zealand is is a polite generally non-confrontational population Mm -hmm. I think everyone is grappling with not wanting to cause insult or offense but feeling that they have a similar right to espouse their own set of beliefs mm-hmm. and thoughts, whether you're minority, you know, or majority or anywhere in between. So going back to the court cases, it's extremely important that we get some clarification about what can public venues be used for? Should they be giving priority to uh, minority groups or should it be open to all of the public, no matter what part of the spectrum they inhabit. So absent legislation, then the courts are the next step to be able to clarify and give some guidance around those issues. So while I know it's horrifically expensive to seek access to any type of judgment, uh, I applaud the Free Speech Union for taking that case. Mm. Whatever the outcome is, at least we will have clarity. Mm. Well, and again, we, we need to acknowledge our, our supporters and the financial partners who have stood with us because, of course, you don't just get a case before the Supreme Court. There's uh, many very, very uh, litigious and expensive steps in, in, the, in the process there. And I guess that's one of the questions I also wanted to ask you is, is in terms of free speech and, and, and the, the access to justice that our legal system is supposed to enshrine, are you concerned that the, the horrifically expensive nature of a lot of these cases actually while while the law would technically defend them, uh, abusing that often not, doesn't come at a cost to employers or others because people can't afford to seek redress through the courts. It's a huge concern, Jonathan, and particularly because public bodies 
who are the ones that are making the decisions and then having to be judicially reviewed. Very deep pockets. Very deep pockets, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. And so there are probably lots of individuals and organisations, you know, who have strong principled bases on which they would like to pursue a judicial review, but it is a hugely expensive process. It's long, it's costly, it takes a lot of productive time that could be otherwise spent doing other things. So public bodies such as the councils have a huge advantage and little accountability in terms of being able to say, I have a safety concern, (laughs) you know, and that just triggers an emotional reaction uh, that allows them to take that action without having to defend or account what actually is behind that. And then somebody else has to take that very expensive time uh, to unpack that in a court. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think I'd be uh, remiss not, again, to acknowledge the donors who have enabled us to do that, but also a, a number of uh, law firms and, and, and barristers and solicitors who have offered uh, tens of thousands of pro bono hours in enabling the Free Speech Union to pursue these cases. And so that, that's why we're here. We're a small organization. We're, we're not pretending to be one of the big guns. But actually, I think it proves the point of good old people power in many ways, where you get different people contributing at the different spaces they can. And, and it can really make a big difference and and here's hoping the supreme court uh will will have a ruling that really enshrines uh right to public venues that's the key issue but it it draws into question this whole concept around uh health and safety and 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 emotional vulnerability and that kind of thing which of course is abused a lot for free speech you talk about councils there hannah and and that is another of the work streams that we've pressed into of course leading up into the local government elections that we're having in several months it's something that space we're continuing to work in. And one of the issues that that frequently emerges there, of course, public venues is one. The other is codes of conduct. Simon, uh, in in Parliament, you've been uh, outspoken against uh, the the way codes of conduct can be used in environments like that. And and, and Matt, of course, um, employees often find themselves quite curtailed they say, of course, you have the right to say these things, but our code of conduct in this section, this number, you're not supposed to say that, are you? So it's kind of this this false legality. Matt, have you come across many cases where uh, where codes of conduct are being weaponized to to gag people? Oh, it's standard, and that's what it's about. See what see what we have is as we strive for a democratic society, but workplaces are not democracies. Hmm. They they are authoritarian. It's feudal. And it's all about shutting you up. You know, everyone's got this anybody with employer. It's always a, comp- a confidential agreement. They, they insist upon it. And, and so on and so on. So, so it is um, a, uh, a, 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 a challenge. But going to the council, I think, which I want to touch on that. I'm, I, for, for, for my sins, you know, you keep doing things. You say yes to things. I'm helping run a campaign up here in Auckland. Uh, for one of the mayor, the mayor, the mayor, mayoral candidates, we can talk about a show the, uh, the, the, the other night about free speech. But I want to touch on thing thing which I think is more insidious. See, local bodies set rules about signage and what you're allowed to promote. And so, if I am a wealthy, if I'm a wealthy candidate, I can spend as much as I like in digital and print and on commercial billboards but my supporters can't put their own sign on their own fence. 
can't put it on. And in fact, they can't even put a sticker on their car. Right? That's that's the rules. And they council staff enforce it. And there are fines. They've increased the fines up to twenty thousand dollars if you break the rules. So what we've got is is this is you know they've tidied up the laws to make them all the same. But what it is, if you've got money, you have not called free speech. It's called paid speech. And so if you're a zillionaire, you've got lots of money, you can spend it. But isn't it just outrageous as your volunteers, which is what a civil society is about, can't go and put a little sign on their own fence in their own home or in their business saying, of the candidate of whom, of, of, of whom I support. And so I think those things, you know, I've explained to the council, these are dangerous, but these are the rules of of, the, of democratic elections. So so that's thing. And just on the... um. Um, you can work out which 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 game that I'm managing or trying to. Um, well, managing the wrong word. Um, um, is that it went on a show the other night on Guy Williams' show, right? And it's not chase. You think, oh, you know, and it, it's a comedy show late at night. You know, being being being, you know, it's not not people's cup 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 tea. But as soon as it goes up, the outrage machine comes in for him to be sacked, but also Guy Williams to be sacked and lose his show. And it's just huge and you're saying this people got to write the producers and that they make their calls and you know they have got to show and so what we've got to do you see is uh, other candidates then well i can that you've got to resign from the race because how dare you and you think what you know so even in a democratic election you're supposed to get cancelled because you've offended some people well it's called the off switch and those people just need to grow but it's a dangerous thing so those are two factors when you mentioned the count the count counts, I think that were thrown into the mix. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, the Free Speech Union has worked with, I, I think it's over a dozen councillors now, but certainly in double digits of, of those that have been attacked by codes of conduct at that local government level. Uh, Michael Laws, a councillor from Otago Regional Council, is an obvious example of where this has just been weaponized. Uh, chief executive bureaucracy, unelected members use these limitations on speech to try and, and harness councillors that are reporting back to ratepayers. Simon, were these some of the concerns that you had uh, around codes of conduct in, in Parliament, is, is, is it about speech that you're principally concerned? Look, absolutely, because the, firstly, everything that uh, Matt just said, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that um, these little, and they're little mobs, let's never forget this, that those going after um, that particular candidate and uh, the comedian, they're a small number of people, mm. but they're shrill and they're loud. And the general populace needs to remember that uh, because we can react and and put an end to it. Um, But, yeah, look, codes of conduct, uh, they're insidious by and large. Um, There's some goodness in them. I mean, you really don't want people acting in a certain way, and perhaps that's that's probably where I should have started. There's always some good. You know, we don't don't deploy codes of conduct for for no reason. There's some valid reasons for it, but it has certainly, certainly become uh, weaponised. And it's a, a slow way of tightening the noose around people. Um, and in many ways, it just leads to self-censorship. And it's certainly why in Parliament I'm very resistant uh, to them, because they will be misused. I mean, I've seen it um, already in my time, even before the codes of conduct. People, I won't name who, that's inappropriate, but yelling and screaming in select committees, upset at something you've said. It's a you know, particular viewpoint, it's a robust environment. But codes of conduct make no um, 
no bones about it, will be used to try and silence uh, people. They'll be dragged out like um, Leo and Guy into the court of public opinion through the media, beaten to a pulp. And by the end of it, no one will know what you actually said. They just think you're a villain. And that's exactly what they're designed to do. Mm. It's interesting the point that you make around how few people are often behind these apparent this apparent outrage that that consumes people's imaginations. One of the cases again that we worked on just to to continue to pull out the examples of the work of the Free Speech Union uh, is is around Speak Up for Women and the campaign that uh, the the billboard rather that they had on Cuba Street uh, that that provocatively included the the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word woman and uh it, it was 34 individuals that managed to get that billboard taken down in a, in a matter of hours uh, and so again it, it, it's a question of uh, the university campus before one individual matt you're saying with this it's, it's a handful of people that that somehow are capable of controlling tens of thousands and and the speech that they use and the speech that they're exposed to as well how have we ended up in a situation where we are so terrified of of such a tiny minority such a handful of people is it is it just a lack of courage good old-fashioned willingness to back yourself or or is it actually a, a simon you're saying you know these things come from good places is it the fact that maybe our society is more considerate now maybe we are more aware of harms that we were less aware of in the past and we're overreacting where's this coming from well, let's be clear so I don't think the activist trying to take down a sign defining a woman um, has any good in it at all. Okay. Codes of conduct come from a, a generally a good place. We don't want people swearing and you know throwing things at each uh, at, at people. But this comes back to something I mentioned earlier. I, I think a lot of people, particularly in the Western world, particularly in the um, Anglo sphere, interesting uh, another debate or a discussion to look at how the Francosphere mm. is operating very differently. But we've lost our confidence. We've lost confidence in our knowledge, our beliefs, our objectivity, a lot of the things that we've grounded ourselves in since the Enlightenment. So you've got a lack of confidence. And then an element, I think, which Hannah and Matter have also touched on is that New Zealanders don't want to be decried. They don't want to be on the front page. They just want a bit of peace and quiet. And so it's easier to, to back off and just let it, be, um, let it be had. And I think when those things start coming together, you end up with the dynamics uh, you have at the moment. Oh, and finally... Your, your commentariat, your media, your Twitterati, they can create a, a very disproportionate um, effect, and particularly to businesses. They just don't want that sort of PR. And again, it's easier, they think, to back down. Uh, but as I often want to say, who particularly cares what someone has said on Twitter? They're free to say it. <laughs> I just don't particularly care. I was asked the other day how I dealt with you know the the very moderate exposure that I have uh, publicly, and I said, "Well, I always remember that no, no one real actually exists on Twitter. You know, re real real people and real speech doesn't really happen there." And so I, I I'm glad Twitter hasn't taken over in the same way that it has in other parts of the world. But um, Hannah, kind of as, as we're drawing into an end, I I I want us. You know, there has to be some hope here. There has to be some some aspiration that this isn't the inevitable path that we maybe slow down, but we are condemned to pursue. It, hopefully there is actually a different tax we can take. And, and one of the things the Free Speech Union works on is the content. You know, we've talked about the cases, we've talked about the campaigns, but the content is is the longer term. Where in 10 years do we want this conversation to be? And how do we promote that conversation? How, we, how do we uh, evoke that discussion from,
from everyday Kiwis to to love free speech. And 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 part of the problem we have is, of course, on the principle of it, we would defend almost anyone's free speech. That's what free speech is about. But that's not to say it's easy or enjoyable. There's a lot of very unenjoyable people to defend out there. Um, you, you've worked in mediation uh, quite a lot. You, you studied at Harvard to, to become a specialist in, in mediation. How do we mediate these, these seemingly irreconcilable sides that that are now even losing the ability to talk to each other you know without speech these severe differences can't even communicate talking to a specialist how do we try and draw people closer together through this i just take a step back and anchor what i'm going to say in in that anecdotal sort of paralysis that I think a lot of New Zealanders are experiencing from things like the the listener seven incrementally we keep hearing where people are being cancelled, deplatformed, pilloried for basically saying factual things. You know, a woman is a is a adult female. There's nothing very contentious about it. Um, But anecdotally each time that a small minority is very vocal, people silence themselves, self-censor. So it's how do we actually as a society say no when each and every single one of us needs to stand up and be prepared to say this is what I believe, you know, whether it's academic freedom, religious freedom, political views, gender, you know, what, whatever the subject is, the hope is that each of us will be brave enough to be able to articulate in a non-confrontational, non-polemic, measured way what we believe and why it's important that it is part of the societal debate. So then taking it to mediation, if, if there is a light of hope in the code of conduct discussion, okay. Being one of the conduct commissioners for the Auckland Council, Mm. those things, if they can't be resolved, do get mediated. And so I do take Simon's and and Matt's point that, unfortunately, once it's out in the public domain, people very rarely remember what was actually said. And there's just that sense of, you know, where there's smoke, there's, you know, there's fire. Um, But the code of conduct does rely on, on... access to mediation so that the parties can talk about, you know, why they were offended, what was intended when they they spoke. Uh, Mediation is a tremendously powerful tool, but very much going to Matt's point, you know, you sign confidentiality agreements so they don't see the light of day. It's far better that we do debate publicly, that we are transparent, accountable, you know, as I say, mediation is is fabulous in terms of the individuals involved, but I'm not sure that society then gains the benefit of what is learned through those experiences. Mm, mm, mm. J- just as we draw to a close here, I, I, I want to go back to each of the three of you and kind of, I guess, take that hope. You know, I, I, I'm told I, I'm an eternal optimist and there's almost something uh, I find offensive about that because I, I don't want it just to be opti- optimism, this this vague hope that things will get better. I genuinely believe that that through collective organization, through our fantastic legal advocates, through our political leaders, through our civil leaders, 
Kiwis can actually set a different course than the one we're on if if we stand up and we speak out and we work together. And and I think our supporters believe in it. That's why there's tens of thousands that that are standing up for this issue. And so uh, I I guess the question is. For each of you, in your relative spheres, how do you think we can, uh, the Free Speech Union, can better promote the cause of free speech going into the next 12 months? We've uh, we've looked at some of the successes we've had over the past 12 months. Where can we continue to grow? I'd, lo- I'd love to kind of have this conversation going. We're going to continue to walk in this space. Our supporters are watching and, and, and we're, we're paying attention to how we can continue to develop this fight what what do we need to take on? So, Matt, why don't you start us off? Where, where do you think the free speech union over the next couple months needs to go? This is the arc of history, you know, and what Simon meant before about enlightenment, you know, the age of enlightenment. Don't forget, most of the history is against free speech has come from the right in terms of religion, mm. you know, state religions, the churches to control people, you know, and you're a heretic if you don't, you know, that's our history. In the age of enlightenment, and you're seeing the disappoint well, not the disappointing thing, but I think what the universities, which are supposed to be the centers of secular thought, was that's why they get tenure to protect mm. them. Mm. So that they have protected speech is there. And so, you know, I this is because I think what they those who get precious about these things, they've got to see themselves not as keepers of keeping hate speech out, they're actually bullies. Mm-hmm. And it's fundamentalism, you know, I actually need to control you from saying what you think. That's not sustainable, you know. And so um, I, I'm very asperger, and I'll just, and so I just want to say to my uh, friends of the left, we were the movements for free speech, and we need to be on the right side of history. That's my word on that. Fantastic. I I can see the quote graphic already that we're going to put out of you on that, Matt. But thanks well, very much. I have much. line on this, as you can see, right? I'm not, I don't think those for free speech, we should ever be apologetic. Mm. We should always stand firm. We must never give in to bullying because if we don't, if we do, that we will have a very bad society. Our future is very bad and everyone's got to stand up for it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Simon, can you give us an equally pithy quote? Uh, I'm not sure, but it, I Worried that I'm, if the quote could be Simon O'Connor's worried about how much he agrees with Matt McCartan. <laughs> but look, two points. Matt's incredibly right. And look, I come out of a religious tradition. That is no uh, surprise. And it's because of that. It's because of my knowledge of where my religious traditions come from mm. that makes me part of the free speech to go, do not do this. Mm. Do not replicate that dogmatic, heretical. Uh, approach. It doesn't end well. It does not end well at all. Um, and so, how do we how do we change things, or rather, how does the free speech union continue? Certainly, your advocacy. Uh, certainly, the campaigns. I think you have to fight the, the in a reactionary way. But perhaps the the encouragement is is how does the free speech union? But all of us here tonight and those listening, how do we have that that courage, as Hannah um, talked about, to to engage conversations with people to to not back down to put our view across respectfully Uh, and then how do we encourage what I call the nexus that really you know all of us have friends and family to actually practice free speech there if someone says something silly or you disagree with start there with your friends and your family and build so perhaps that's where the free speech union can begin to to help in some way um, to encourage and perhaps it's just something as simple as your beliefs your words your thoughts are worth being shared. Mm, mm. 
Fantastic. And H- Hannah, what, 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 what's the last pearl of wisdom that we're going to take away from tonight? Unfortunately, I, th- I think they've already been spoken. But <laughs> for me, the bedrocks really are democracy and diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And we are all born with equal dignity and equal rights. And so it is that respect and enabling that inclusion and diversity to be expressed, to not shut down. And really picking up on Matt's point, bullying and intimidation seems to be part of what is happening. And so we need to find effective ways to counter that we we support and protect it in many other spheres, but not in the free speech sphere. And for me, education and academia is so fundamental to where society is going to go that you can run yourself ragged in so many different directions. But unless we are teaching the value of debate, diversity of opinion, challenging your own views, listening to other views, so that we have a healthy society going forward. Mm. Absolutely. Well, it, it's always been su- it's always such a pleasure. I've, I think we've sat down with each one of you individually, but but to see the differences come together and go, hang on a second, through conversation, through dialogue, we can bridge so much difference. Th- that does give me cause for hope in the future. Uh, if I can just conclude by saying to uh, to the supporters of the Free Speech Union, uh, for those of you that have been with us from the beginning, the the four thousand that we started with in May last year to the almost eighty thousand now, a lot of you have come on board, and, and that's what keeps us going from day to day is the belief that Kiwis are actually quite intent on giving everyone a fair go and and allowing people to have their say and saying I'll decide at the end of the day what I think and what I believe, and, and that's what we're really standing up for. So thank you to. To the, to the tens of thousands of Kiwis who have done what they can, whether through uh, joining us in public meetings, through signing our petitions, through submitting to the government, through donating. Uh, every bit, every contribution has made a difference. And we've seen major successes. I hope you'll refer to that uh, annual review document through legislative changes, uh, through, through cases, through the media content that we've been able to put out. We're going to be continuing to try and change the dynamic, change the conversation. We're going to use our speech to actually promote that and hopefully going forward uh, we'll, we'll see people love speech more despite the differences that we have for tonight though uh, I think that's more than enough from me and uh, while we could hear from the rest of you uh, ongoing uh, we'll have to save that for another time so Hannah James, uh, Matt McCartan, Simon O'Connor thank you each for joining us and thank you for your support for the Free Speech Union Keep it up Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakiti anō.